All right. So today uh, we're continuing, as Dave said, in this posture of disorientation. And we're looking at Psalm 109. So this is our Psalms of the Kingdom. Um, so who, who, who gets or reads the newsletter out of curiosity, just so I can get a general sense? So if you got a chance to read it, you would know that I was... I mentioned this idea that the psalm is a good companion to last week's psalm, uh, Psalm 88. And the reason that Psalm 109 and Psalm 88 are good companions is because they are the reverse of the great commandments that Christ gives us. Jesus says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And if last week was about the difficulty of loving God when he doesn't seem to answer, this week is about the difficulty of loving our neighbor when they are our enemy. As I was working through this psalm, there were these three, I guess, clear elements. And I know that three is a good sermon tool, but that was just purely by chance. Um, And I want to point these out right at the beginning, just so that you can have this as a thought in the back of your mind. Um, The first is this, and of course, feel free to question or challenge this. First, this psalm is once again, as with last week, raw. It's raw in its speech. It is an articulation of hate, of rage, of vengeance, and its expression is honest about the hurt that we witness in our lives and in the world. The second thing I I noticed is that it is speech to God, right? And if you remember from last week, even in despair, there was still speech. And in this speech, it is about submission because it is rage but it's rage that is taken, like Beth going on a walk, it's taken into the presence of God, into the presence of a God who understands it, but is fundamentally the one who gets to choose what to do with it. Uh, And finally, third, in its submission to God and a God who can act and who will act, Psalm 109 points us towards something like liberation, freedom from rage and anger. After God hears, after the right to have revenge is relinquished to him, the consequence for the psalmist is freedom from hatred. So that was just the three points I wanted you to have in your mind because it felt to me like it anticipates that beautiful sermon of Jesus on the mount when he says to the hearers these really difficult words, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be called children of your Father in heaven. But that's anticipating where I'm ending before I'm beginning. So let's start with the psalm. And let's start in an act of speech. So this is the first. For the lead player, a David psalm. God of my praise, do not be silent. And if you're reading on at home or here, uh, I'm using a, a translation that I used last week by a Hebrew scholar called Robert Alter. Um, in part because it gets the cadence of the poetry. God of my praise, do not be silent. So this psalm opens with a commitment to the idea that God will hear. Just like Psalm 88, even though there is raw feeling, this is not a silent person. This is a prayer that the psalmist believes God could hear and would understand. God of my praise, do not be silent. The Psalms are full of faithful people who trust that God will act, and they believe that speaking with him is essential for being in the world. 
The Psalms are a demonstration of hope that God hears and that God acts. And then almost immediately it gets sticky. For the wicked's mouth, the mouth of deceit has opened against me. They spoke to me with lying tongue. And the words of hatred swarmed round me. They battle me for no cause. In return for my love, they accuse me. Then my prayer is for them. And they offer me evil in return for good. And hatred in return for my love. Appoint a wicked man over him. Let an accuser stand at his right. So I said this thing right at the beginning, which is this, this psalm is full of speech to God. Um, but there's also another kind of speech that's present in this. For most of the psalm, verses 2 to about 19, much of the language is what Walter Brueggemann calls raw, undisciplined songs of hate and a wish for vengeance by someone who has suffered deep hurt and humiliation. So here in this section of the psalm, we see the psalmist complain about how they have been treated, right? Receiving evil for good, hatred for love. Has anyone ever been treated in that way? Tried to be kind and received only disparagement or unkindness or even hatred? Maybe parents do that more often, I'm not sure, hopefully not. And this, this end, which is verse 6 in the NIV, is strange. It's the moment where the prayer shifts into something that you might call vengeance. So it says, God, appoint a wicked man and an accuser. So the language in the Hebrew here is what you would call the language of the court. It's a, it's a juridical kind of language. The first term in Hebrew is something like an evil prosecutor. So not just someone who will prosecute, but someone who's really familiar with evil and ugliness. And then the word accuser is a word that is famous to us, well, familiar to us all, because it is the word Satan. That is somebody who tests things out. The speaker of this psalm is confident that this court, this court of evil, will find evidence against their enemy and will find it overwhelming. And then things get out of hand. I know that's a little small, so let me read it. When he is judged, let him come out guilty, and let his prayer be an offence. Let his days be few, may another man take his post. May his children become orphans and his wife a widow. May his children wander and beg, driven out from the ruins of their homes. May, may the lender snare all that he has, and may strangers plunder his wealth. May no one extend to him kindness, and no one pity his orphans. May his offspring be cut off. In the next generation, his name wiped out. May the wrong of his fathers be recalled by the Lord and his mother's offense not be wiped out. Let these ever be before the Lord that he cut off from the earth their name. Because he did not remember to do kindness and pursue the poor and needy, the heart sore, and to put him to death. He loved a curse. May it come upon him. He desired not blessing. May it stay far from him. He donned curse as his garb. May it enter his innards like water and like oil in his bones. May it be like a garment he wraps round him and like a belt he girds at all times. This be the plight of my accusers from the Lord and those who speak against my life. 
I mean, this is typical Sunday talk, right? I mean, this is, this is comfortable to all of us. Yeah. You notice that that investigation, that court process that the psalmist says, okay, let's set up, let's set up a court. Let's set up an accuser. It's immediately undercut because they've already determined the outcome, right? God judged them, but actually I already know what the judgment should be. I know my enemy is guilty. And what follows, and the reason that I wanted it all in this big single mess, is what, that, what Brueggemann called raw, undisciplined speech. The psalmist, if you notice, doesn't talk to God at all. He doesn't address God directly, but simply voices their hurt. I think this is the moment in the psalm where I saw something of myself very clearly, uh, which is that when we are hurt, our imaginations can run particularly wild. And the deeper the hurt, the more ugly and the more violent we imagine the retribution should be. It won't just be my enemy that is found guilty. No, no, it should be their whole family, all their property. There should be no limit to the price that they pay. I mean, this is a retribution that is pretty common, right? Any of us who have studied any kind of history will know that this is the kind of retribution that very often people pay. We suffer hurt and we suffer indignities and they don't just develop into hatred for the people that oppress us, but for their families or for their religion or for their race or for their ethnicity. The psalmist wants their enemy to be destroyed, wiped out, humiliated, cut off from any hope of grace or forgiveness or hope. The overwhelming sense is that if you do what this person has done, you don't deserve anything except for the exact same treatment that they gave you. And not just them, not just your enemy, but everyone they love. When I was reading this, I mean, for me personally and in the work that I do, I thought of the criminal justice system. Right? The punishment should fit the crime. Justice is equal pain, equal hurt, equal cost to the people that perpetrate. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I'm not going to read the next part of that, but I'm guessing you know what he says after. So you might be wondering what the perpetrator has done, right? To get this kind of vitriol and anger and hatred directed to them. We don't get any specifics in this bit of the psalm. Um, but there are some clues. So it's clear that this enemy showed no one kindness. They exploited the poor and the helpless, and they cursed others rather than blessed them. They used every opportunity to improve their life, and they exploited everyone else. I wonder if uh, you know anyone like that. They've used every opportunity to improve their life and they've exploited other people to get there. And the psalmist wants the punishment to match the crimes. So notice here, and it's in this same section. If this person works against those who are unjustly exploited, right? If they exploit other people who are poor, then they should become poor and helpless. If they have strength and they don't use it for kindness, then no one should be kind to them. 
if they clothed themselves in curses, which is such a lovely piece of language, right? They wear their curses, they wear their hatred. If they live their life proudly donning the language and actions of an oppressor, well then that should be their life, right? You, you sow what you reap, you reap what you sow. Today we might say something like, well, you should choke on your own hatred, right? What you say should suffocate you. You get what you deserve. There is a sense in this psalm that this is an enemy. This isn't just any random person. This is someone who had power and wealth and had a good opportunity in life and all they did it, instead of using it in a life-giving way, is that they used their chance to prop up themselves. This is a person in power who uses their power to hurt the powerless. I don't think it's difficult to imagine somebody like this, and I suspect in hearing this, like Ariki said, there's something about this in us that says, yeah, why not? And so we read on. And you, O Lord, Master, act on my behalf for the sake of your name, for your kindness is good. Save me, for poor and needy am I, and my heart is pierced within me. Like a lengthening shadow, I go off. I am shaken away like the locust. My knees falter from fasting, and my flesh is stripped of fat. As for me, I became a reproach to them. They see me, they shake their heads. Help me, O Lord, my God. Rescue me as befits your kindness, that they may know that your hand it is. It is you, O Lord, who did it. Let them curse, and you, you will bless. They will rise and be shamed, and your servant will rejoice. Let my accusers don disgrace, and let them wrap round like a robe their shame. So this is the point in the psalm where the psalmist returns to speaking to God. And I wonder if in moments of anger, we do the same thing, right? We get carried away with obsession over the object of our hate. And then we return once again to thinking of who we're speaking to. This is a crucial moment in the psalm. The psalmist says to God that their disoriented situation, the thing that they have, broke, that they have described to God, it is God's problem. It's God's responsibility. This is abrupt. It's a direct address right at the beginning. And, and you, O oh Lord, act on my behalf. It's surrounded by a series of what we call imperatives. Act, save, help me. And you'll notice here that the psalmist gives God three reasons to help them. These are good to practice if you ever want to think about really convincing God as if that's possible, right? So he says three things. He says, for the sake of your name, right? Help me out, God. It's, it's for your reputation. It's an appeal to God's majesty. This is what you do. This is who you are. Help me out, God, for your kindness. Right? And this word kindness is an appeal to the covenant with Israel. His faithful, faithful treatment in the past. You said you would do this, God, so do it now. And then the third... The appeal is made on behalf of how much the speaker is just hurting, right? It's not just, God, do this for your majesty, do this because you're faithful. It's also, do this because it's hurting me and I need you to do it. This is an appeal to God's compassion. 
I'm poor and needy and my heart is pierced within me. My knees falter, my, my flesh is stripped of fat. This is a belief that God will see how deeply the person who is praying is hurting and will respond. I think this is, this is a comprehensive appeal to God, right? For your majesty, according to your promises, because of your great compassion and love, please do this. And then it ends, and it ends in a rather typical fashion for the Psalter. I highly acclaim the Lord with my mouth, and in the midst of the many I praise him, for he stands at the needy's right hand to rescue him from his condemners. So I'm guessing those of you who were here last week are thankful that at least we don't end in darkness like Psalm 88 does. Here it ends in anticipation, right? I acclaim you, I praise you, you're the God of the needy. There's a sense here in which you get the impression that the enemy was a person at some point that the psalmist appealed to. I look to my neighbor for provision, but I'm reminded that you're the God that provides. So it is clear in this psalm, and I said this at the top, that there are two kinds of ways of speaking here, two different hopes, and they're intertwined. On the one hand, we have this kind of speech, which begins the psalm, which ends the psalm. God, you're God, you'll do what you do. And in the midst of it, we have speech that is not focused on God at all. Unrestrained, vengeful, and full of hate. So the question I asked last week and the question I ask again is, do we need this kind of speech in our community, right? Do we need this? And I think, again, that we do. And the reason that we can use this psalm in our community and in our lives is precisely for this reason, because of those two kinds of speech. Faithful speech and speech that is unrestrained and unfocused. Because, ultimately, that unrestrained speech of hate finally is surrendered to the speech of faith. Psalm 109 is realistic about us, right? As a people, we sometimes turn to God, I think. I, I mean, I, I do sometimes. And sometimes we are people who cry out in rage at the state of the world, who hate things as they are, and who are impatient in surrendering those concerns to God because it doesn't seem to do a thing. This psalm contains speech that is sure and surrendered to God, which is us in our best days. And this psalm contains raw anger and hatred that, like many of us, myself included, is us at our worst, or maybe not worst, maybe most honest. The beauty of this psalm is that it does not condemn rage at exploitation or unfairness. It understands exploitation and unfairness, and it understands rage, which is why when I read it, you could feel that going, yeah, I know what that feels like. The psalm knows that rage, and this is me, I want to say this twice because it's a strange sentence, but this kind of rage wants to be expressed, right? This kind of hatred, rage, wants to be expressed. And there are ways that we can choose to do that. But the psalm knows that rage is rightly carried even into the presence of God, whose rule is marked by majesty 
and faithfulness and compassion. But notice in this psalm that hatred and rage are not just brought into the presence of God. They're submitted to him and in the end relinquished. As I was reading this through the week and trying not to get caught up in its anger, right, but thinking about it, I realized that the way that this psalm ends is to show us how free, unrestrained language of rage can be and should be handed over to God. We can submit it to God because there is a reason to be confident that God will hear it, right? There is all kinds of speech that God will accept and take seriously and act upon. And for the psalmist, they were confident because they knew that God had promised in the future that he would act. And for us, our confidence resides in the fact that God gave a generous gift of grace realized in the person of Jesus. For those of us who follow him, we remember again those words, right? Love your enemies. Praise, pray for those who persecute you. Psalm 109 is a reminder of the importance of speaking to God, even when we feel stuff as raw and unfiltered as this. But it's a reminder also that when we do that, when we speak, we have to remember what he's done, his saving and compassionate nature, and the fact that that's who we are becoming. I was talking to Dave about this today, and we had this conversation about what happens if you don't speak, right? What happens if, not even in the silent moments of prayer, we keep this kind of stuff silent from God? And I, I thought of two alternatives, and I couldn't think of which one was worse. I think that one is repression, right? Where that rage and hatred fester, and they breathe more rage and hatred until it's difficult to even understand what's different between us and the grudge that we hold, who we are and where we begin and our fear ends. And the other alternative is, of course, the one that acts out Cain and Abel being the very first and obvious narrative of what happens when rage and hatred is, denies the sovereignty of God to be the one that acts and the one that judges. We see every day the violent consequences of hurt and rage that are not expressed but that are acted upon, or that are expressed but not submitted to God. Either alternative is destructive, unhealthy, you could even call it unfaithful. And I think that they are also easier, probably, if that's fair to say. It's easier to repress things that are ugly about us, and it is easier sometimes to lash out of those feelings rather than it is to submit to God. But I think that Psalm 109 is a picture of liberation. Because when we act on either of those two alternatives, they are a trap. Psalm 109 says, on the one hand, remember that you're free. And on the other hand, it saves the speaker from choosing retaliation. In that model of an eye for an eye, that thing that feels good, the justice, right, where everything is equal and what you do is done to me, in that model of an eye for an eye, we are all blind. There is no end to retribution when we seek justice on the basis of what is wrong rather than on the basis of grace. 
So it struck me, and this is kind of how I'm ending, and I, I know they're cheering broadly for me, probably. Um, which is kind, but I, I'm gonna keep going. It's like the Oscar music has started rolling on. Um, it struck me that some of us might have never been this angry. I don't know if there are any saints or monks among us who don't know these feelings. Um, and then the question is, and I put this up here, I'm like, who's, you know, what's the point? And I thought, if, if that's where you find yourself, ask this question, whose psalm is this? Who in our community or in our world might find these words familiar and true for them in this moment? There are too many of us who are victims of violence, of abuse, victims of small-mindedness, of cruelty. There are people in our world who are resentful of being displaced, who are wearying of daily violence, whether it's interpersonal or sanctioned by a state. When we pray this psalm, it's not just a psalm of our own rage, it's a psalm of joining in the prayers of those who take God seriously, but whose lives are heavy with darkness, and who need other people to know what this feels like, and to pray alongside them. Because Psalm 109 reminds us that rage like this is real, and its destination should be to heaven. To love our neighbour, as Jesus commands, might also involve praying with them in this kind of language, right? In grief, in anger. A prayer like this is a model as we pray for ourselves or others in what it looks like to articulate rage, to submit it to God, and then to move past it. We are being perfected, right? I, I know this. We're being called to forgive and to relinquish and surrender our hurts. But that doesn't mean that we're silent about those hurts to God. We know that God hears our hurt, our rage, our vengeance, our despair. And in speaking to Him and interceding for our world, we're invited to remember that disorientation is real and that God is working to make all things new. In this kind of framework that we've set up for this series of disorientation, I think that this is the voice of a disordered life yearning for a new way. The very fact that this psalm is addressed to God is an act of hope, and I've got this here, is an act of hope that disorder will not have the last word. Such prayers like this are going to be prayed until God's kingdom comes in its fullness. And as we pray with the psalmist, as we pray with the disordered and hurting among us, we remember that it was Christ who freed us to do this, right? He freed us to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. He freed us that his kingdom would come in us, that his will would be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen?